Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 9, looking at the passage that we just spent some time reading and meditating upon. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew, if you're new here, is the book we're working through. It's the first book of the New Testament in your copy of God's Word. We have today an, an interesting account while you turn there. It's a, an account where Matthew, the, the writer of the gospel, tells of his moment of conversion when he became a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's kind of a, an interesting moment, and we'll hear about a conversation that results from his conversion and, and how that led to an, a, an interesting conversation with the Pharisees and, and a rather important conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees for us. If you want to note, you might be interested to know there's parallel passages, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke both mention this account. Uh, in Mark 2, 13 to 17, you'll read of this, as well as Luke 5, 27 to 32. In both those accounts, we really, primarily Luke, we learn a little more about Matthew than we do here. In, in Mark and Luke, Matthew is called Levi. More than likely, Levi was his name given at birth. Matthew, perhaps, is a name given to him later after following Christ. We don't know that for sure, but uh, some speculate that that's the case. Matthew uh, most likely meant gift of God. And so Matthew here calls himself by that name, but Mark and Luke call him by the name Levi. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." We pick up here in, in verse 9, and we, we understand that Jesus, in our previous passage, had come into his own town, into Capernaum, and now he's moving on from there. As he moves on, he is, he's walking, and he sees Matthew, or, or Levi, a tax collector. We know from history that tax collectors then are not well thought of. They're not people that everyone wants to just gather around and be around. They're, they're somewhat of a, an outcast primarily because of their role. He would, would be one that's not well thought of, one that many Jews would see as being unclean, that you wouldn't want to be around. He would be one who was seen by many as a traitor because he's taking their money and he's giving that money to the Romans. So people don't necessarily like tax collectors. So Levi or Matthew is sitting there, and he's not one that everybody's coming up to and, and saying, hey, have you seen this? And they're, they're wanting to approach, but yet Jesus, when he sees him, does indeed approach him. He gives him a simple call, doesn't he? 
a call that we see often in the Gospels, but just two words. He looks at Matthew, and by Matthew's account, this is all Matthew needed. Jesus looks to him and simply says, follow me. And Matthew reports of his own moment that he rose and followed him. Perhaps Matthew had seen, he had heard, he knew of the teachings of Christ. We don't know that for certain. But in that moment, when Jesus looks at him and says, follow me, Matthew submits and he follows him. Now, if you just want to jot down Luke 5.28, over in Luke, we read something that's important. Luke probably gives a little more um, information about what's going on here. Matthew, perhaps kind of a, a humble writer, I would say. He doesn't say I'm humble, right? But he appears to be quite humble here. Matthew just writes that Jesus said, follow me, and I followed him, right? Well, Luke, in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 28 of his gospel, he says this. He says, when Jesus said, follow me, he says, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So Luke reports to us that in that moment, not only it wasn't just all, he followed him. He left everything behind, and he followed the Lord. Everything that he knew, his life was changed. He left his wayward life. He left his circle of friends. He left his lucrative living, and he followed Christ. He followed Christ. Now, again, Matthew doesn't really give us a lot of details, but in verse, um, let's see, in verse 10, Matthew just reports and says, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with him. Now, Luke, again, gives us a little more information. Matthew just reports that, hey, he was in the house and there are tax collectors and sinners around. Well, whose house? Why were they gathered? What was going on here? Well, Luke tells us in verse 29 of chapter 5 in his gospel, he says, Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So Levi, or Matthew, calls this great feast, and he invites his circle of friends with him. He, it's a time of, of celebration. His life has changed. It's a new day. He's now following Christ. He's not living for himself. He's not following the ways of the world, but now he is following Jesus, and his life has changed. So he throws a feast. He throws a celebration. And who would he invite but those who he knows? He invites those that he spent the most time with. Those that he gathered with the night before, the week before, the Saturday night before, perhaps, the tax collectors that he ran with, that he associated with, the ones that were his friends and closest ones, the ones that people would classify as sinners. He invites them, and they gather at his house for a celebration. And at the house, it's not only the tax collectors and sinners, but it's Jesus and his disciples. They're all gathered together for this celebration this feast. Now, we understand from the text here that this doesn't set well right with the Pharisees in verse 11. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It makes them uncomfortable. Their, their piety is kind of made uncomfortable, right? They're going, wait, I don't know about this. They're kind of itching, you know? They're, they're just unsettled. Why is Jesus, this one who is teaching, why is he associating with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I would just point out that in the midst of this, they don't go and confront Jesus, do they? 
Who do they go to? They, they go to his disciples. They're not bold enough. They're not courageous enough to go and, and talk to him. They, said, they say to the disciples, hey, why does your teacher do this? Uh, we don't know. The text doesn't indicate why they did this. Perhaps it was to kind of undermine his teaching. Perhaps it was to put a, a seed of doubt in his authority. Maybe it was just to cause them to kind of doubt whether he was truly of the Lord, of, of God. Maybe it's just to bring disunity. We don't know, right? But it unsettled them. And Jesus' response is what? He gives them a really simple life lesson, really. He says, you know, it's not the well that need a physician. The physician is for the sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So he gives them a, a very simple life lesson, lesson, and then he reveals how much they have to learn. What does he tell them to do? Go and learn, right? Go, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then he states his mission. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We have here a, an interesting encounter. You know, in, 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 our, in our time outside of the Sermon on the Mount, since we've left the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus comes down from preaching that sermon, we get into Matthew 8, and we see right away Matthew 8, he starts to heal, right? He, he heals three unlikely people, if you remember. He heals a, a leper, there in 8, 1 through 4, he then heals a Gentile centurion, a Roman centurion. And then he goes and he, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, right? After healing those in, in verses 18 to 22 of chapter, two, or chapter 8, he turns away two men who perhaps would be disciples, followers of him, but they weren't forsaking all to follow him, right? Perhaps a, a little bit of contrast here with Matthew, but they don't... They aren't ready to give up all and follow him. We read of that. We read of his power, right? We, we see a demonstration of his power over nature as he calms the storm. We see a demonstration of his power over the spiritual realm as he casts out demons. We see a demonstration of his power and authority to forgive sins. And now we come to a moment where he calls Matthew, a tax collector, an unlikely convert. And we hear of an unmerciful complaint from the Pharisees. And so that's what we want to spend our time on today. Is we want to look at Matthew, an unlikely convert. And then we want to consider this unmerciful complaint from the Pharisees. Let's consider ver first in verse 9, Matthew, the unlikely convert. We, we mentioned already that, that Matthew is a tax collector. So this already makes him one that would be unlikely to be a convert. In the eyes of the world, in the eyes of those around him, again, he is a traitor. He's one that if you're outside of his circle, few would think well of him, right? He's one that if everybody listed the who's who in that time, kind of the, the who's who of would-be disciples, Matthew's name is not on the list, right? And when Matthew graduates high school and you turn to the flat, back flap of the yearbook and you look at his senior superlatives. No one voted him for most likely to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Right? He, that's not Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. He's not well thought of. No one's thinking this guy is going to be a follower of Jesus. This guy is going to be one of his disciples. He's going to be close to him. He's going to write a gospel. No one is thinking that when it comes to Matthew. Yet here Jesus calls Matthew to follow him. 
to follow him. It, it, it might seem strange at first, especially to the, the ears listening, but the ears listening that thought it might seem strange, it might be caught off guard, would do well to remember how God uses those who are unlikely to be used throughout Scripture, right? When we think back and we think back on, on Scripture and just consider those that God uses, we remember that there, God uses those who man might deem as unlikely to be used. God doesn't put his grace upon those who we deem are ready, who we deem are, well, they're acceptable, they're going to be successful, they have these accolades, they have these qualifications. That's not the basis for God's grace. God's grace is unmerited. It's undeserved, right? Just consider for a moment some of these in Scripture that God uses. About in Genesis chapter 27, we read in chapter 27 of Genesis of Jacob, the deceiver, right? He lies to, he, first he steals the birthright of his brother, right? Then he deceives his father. He lies to his father to get his blessing. Surely God wouldn't use him. Well, God does use Jacob. So much so that, that Jacob's name is changed to what? Israel. Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and he becomes the father of 12 sons who become, what, the 12 tribes of Israel. God uses Jacob. In Exodus 2 through 4, we see the beginning. We read the beginning accounts of Moses, a murderer who evidently had some type of speech impediment. Yet God uses Moses to redeem his people and to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. We even see in, in Numbers 22 that God uses a donkey, right? That's been encouraged, encouraging to a lot of us over our years. If God can use Balaam's donkey, then surely to goodness he can use us, right? What about Joshua 2? Near the beginning of Joshua, when the people cross the promised land and their, their first encounter, their first battle is Jericho, who does God use to deliver Jericho into the hands of his people? Rahab, the prostitute. Surely an unlikely person for God to use. We flip on over. We flip to the book of Ruth. Who do we read? We read of God using Naomi, a helpless widow, and Ruth, a Moabite widow. They have nothing to their name, nothing that they would put forward and say, here's who I am, use me. But God uses them to raise up and to bring about the lineage of King David and ultimately the Messiah. Or read on, 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Who do we read of there? We read of David, the least of his brothers, who's left a shepherd. He's too young to go and fight and to battle. But yet, he is anointed as king, and God uses this teenager to defeat Goliath and to free his people from the Philistines. Daniel. What about Daniel? Surely to, God, surely to goodness, God wouldn't use teenagers, right? But yet we have the account of four teenage boys that God uses to glorify his name because they will not bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. God uses unlikely people. He even uses disobedient prophets. You remember our study of Jonah? A prophet who's being a prophet who's sent to provide a message to the Ninevites, a message of repentance, Yet Jonah disobeys, but God uses him. What about Matthew chapter 4? Matthew chapter 4 gives us the account of Jesus calling a young fisherman by the name of Peter. Actually, Simon. 
Here comes Peter. This man was rash, inconsistent. His greatest ability and trait was to stick his foot in his mouth, right? Jesus calls him as an apostle and uses him mightily in the history of the church. What about Mark chapter 5? A demon-possessed man. Do you remember that account? Mark 5 and earlier in Matthew chapter 8, Pastor Mike preached on it a few weeks back. A demon-possessed man that, that Jesus frees of the demons and sends him to take the good news to his town and his people. Mark 5 verse 20 says that because of his testimony, the people marveled at the Lord. An unlikely person for him to use. Or what about John 4? Remember John 4 who God works in? The Samaritan woman, do you remember the encounter with Jesus and the woman at the well? The Samaritan woman who many Jewish men, if not most Jewish men, would not have even spoken to. Jesus speaks to her. She had had five husbands in the past and was now with another man who was not her husband. But yet, Jesus uses her. The end of that story gives us the account of her going to her town. And they believed. Why? Because of her testimony. Because of her testimony. God uses unlikely people. Surely we can't forget Paul, right? Acts chapter 9, we see the account of his conversion. Paul, the, the vicious, zealous persecutor of Christians, is converted into what most, if not all, of us should say is the, was the influen most influential mission, missionary theologian of all of church history who wrote the majority of our New Testament letters, but yet he was a zealous, vicious persecutor of Christians. And I would even say that in 1996, in Cumming, Georgia, God did a work in the life of a young man who had no idea what he was going to do in life, who was just going to school because he had to go to school and figure out something to do and who was so terrified of public speaking that it would just grip him and almost cripple him. And God worked in his life, and I'm able to stand before you today. God uses unlikely people. God works in our lives in such a way to magnify his name. To magnify his name. We don't worship any of those that were just listed. We didn't gather and we didn't lift high the name of Rahab or Joshua. We didn't lift high the name of Moses or Peter or Matthew. We lift high the name of Jesus Christ because he works powerfully in the lives of people, people that some may deem as, as unlikely to be used, some that might not merit grace. Of course they did not because grace is not merited. Grace is given of the Lord. God has no prerequisites for his calling. God calls. We don't earn it. We aren't good enough to deserve it. He simply calls and we are left to respond to that call. Have you responded to that call? It would be a question. I, I, I think about 2 Corinthians 5.17 when I read this. How does Matthew go from this traitor to the people of Israel, the, this one who is thought poorly of, this one who is described as a sinner, to one who follows Christ and, and is faithful to the end, who writes a gospel whom, that, which God has used to change 
countless lives throughout history. I mean, consider that. A tax collector wrote a 28-chapter gospel narrative to proclaim and share the life of God by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And God has used his writing to change countless lives. Some of you in here have came to faith in Christ because of what you read from his account of the gospel message. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? How does that happen? What happens because of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's a new creation. He's been made new. The old has passed away. The new has come. You see, we, we come to God as we are. God takes us as we are. He makes us new. He gives new life, and he frees us from the bondage of sin. He works powerfully in our lives to transform us, to make us a new creation and use us for his great glory. He did this in Matthew's life. He's done it in my life. And I know that he can do it in your life too. If you sit here tonight, today and you're an unbeliever, you've never given your life to Christ, I believe the conversion of Matthew here is important for you. I believe it's important for you to hear that Matthew, along with countless others in Scripture, are unlikely converts. They're unlikely by man's standards to be used of God. Yet God works powerfully in their lives to transform them, to make them new, and to use them powerfully because of His great grace and His great mercy. Not because of who they are, not because of what they can do, but because our God is an awesome and merciful and powerful and gracious and loving and kind God. That's why He does that. So some of you are gathered today and, and you're just thinking and you think, I'm not good enough to be saved. If I can get this right and do this thing, then I'll start following Christ. That's not how it works. God doesn't say clean up your act, clean up yourself, clean up your life, and then follow me. No, he says follow me, right? So if you're waiting to be good enough, then Matthew says, you know, you're not called to wait and be good enough. You're called to follow Christ, so follow him. Some of you would say, well, I'm kind of like Matthew because I've done so many wrong things. I've taken advantage of people. I've lied to people. I've been deceptive. I've stolen. I can't follow God. Well, no, that's wrong too. Because your sins are never greater than his mercy. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. There's never a day where the, the depth and the greatness of our sin weighs more than his grace. It doesn't happen. Some of you have been so hurt, so abused by people that you sit and you're at a spot where you would say, you know what, I'm just not even worth God saving. Obviously, the way I've been treated and what I've gone through, no one cares about me. God does not care for me. There's no hope. I'm not worth it. That too is wrong. That's wrong. You are worth it. Ask Rahab. Ask Paul. Ask people sitting here amongst you who went through things in life that they would rather not remember, who walked through valleys to find that God is a great and a powerful and a merciful Savior who changes our lives who calls us to walk in him for his glory and has great plans laid out for us. See, the testimony of Scripture is not that you aren't good enough, you've done too much wrong. Well, no, sorry. The testimony of Scripture is that you're not good enough, right? The testimony is not that, well, I, I just, 
I've done so much wrong, I can't be saved. The testimony of Scripture is not that I, I'm just not worthy enough. No, the testimony of Scripture is exactly what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16. You know Jesus said in our passage, he came to what? To save sinners, right? You know what Paul's testimony was? In 1 Timothy 1, 15 to 16, he said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he says, of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew. Paul knew his condition. He knew the depth of sin in his heart. And he says, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, all these people that we mentioned, all these people we shared about are people who are testimonies of God's great grace. They're not testimonies of their worth. They're not testimonies of their ability. They're not testimony of how good they were. They're testimonies of how rotten they were of how much they didn't deserve grace. But yet God poured out grace on them and mercifully saved them. That's what their testimonies of. Their testimonies that God comes and makes the old new, right, and transforms lives. That's the testimony of these. That's the testimony of Matthew. That's the testimony you need to hear, that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And we all are sinners. We all are sinners. And if you've never trusted Christ, the testimony that you need to hear is that God sent his one son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, something that we can't do, and to die on the cross for your sins. And that he has promised as he rose victoriously from the grave, he has promised that all who turn from their sins and trust in him, confessing that he is Lord, will be saved. The good news, the good news is that you don't have to be good enough. The good news is that you're not getting to this point where you're, you have to be worthy. The good news is that you're not going to make it to where you say, I can earn it and I'm now ready. The good news is that Christ has, sent, or Christ has come to die for you. He came to die for sinners. The good news is that the scripture says that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. That's good news. That's life-changing, transforming, hope-filling news. Peter said that we are saved to a living hope through the power of his resurrection. Living hope. So I would call you first as you look and you think and consider Matthew's calling. I would encourage you to consider responding as Matthew responded. Leave everything and follow Christ today. The second thing we want to look at, we look at the unlikely convert, right? The second thing we want to look at is this, this complaint, right? This complaint from the Pharisees, this unmerciful complaint that we read from the Pharisees in verses 10 through 13. What followed Matthew's conversion brought complaints. You would think that the Pharisees of all people would see Matthew follow Christ, leaving everything behind, getting up and following him and throwing this great feast. You would think the Pharisees would celebrate too. He's thrown this great celebration. All his friends attend. And I think we would rightly go, wow, that's great. That's amazing. All these tax collectors and sinners are gathered in Matthew's house and they're gathered with Christ and his disciples. That's a good thing. Well, the Pharisees are thinking, no, it's not. What in the world is he doing? He's making himself unclean. He's mingling with those he shouldn't be mingling with. Why in the world would he do that? 
And so they go and they, they seek to undermine him. They, they seek to say, hey, this is problematic. I mean, if, if this guy is the Messiah, if he's one everybody's following and he's preaching this message that the kingdom has come to repent, then why in the world is he dining with sinners and tax collectors? I mean, it's one thing to teach them, right? I mean, it's, it's one thing to stand and teach, but like, to go grab lunch after you teach with them, that's, don't do that. <laughs> You need to kind of keep them at distance. Don't, don't actually fellowship with them. Don't be caught in the same house with them. That, that's too far. Too far. So how does Jesus respond to this complaint? How does he respond? There's three ways that he responds. The first thing Jesus does in verse 12 is he corrected their perspective. He corrected their perspective. See, the, fact, the Pharisees had all but forgotten that outside of Christ's redeeming work, we are all dreadful sinners. They had lost sight of that. They didn't see that, right? Instead, they were under this illusion that the Messiah came to pat the righteous on the back, to say, hey, attaboy, good job. I'm so proud of you. Man, I'm going to reward you. You're so pious and you're so religious. Great job. They were living under this religion or this, uh, this, this idea. And so Jesus comes and he says, listen, he gives them that lesson. Do you, do you not know that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick? Jesus became because none of us are well. Jesus came because none of us are well. We all need Christ. Every one of us need Christ. It's not as though Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you're, you, old Pharisee, you're well. You don't need anything. You're good. I just came for these sinners. That's not what he's saying. He's not creating two categories of people here. When he, when he looks later and he, he says, um, um, the righteous and the sinners there in verse 13, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Again, he's not talking about two categories of sinners. I mean, two categories of people, righteous and sinners, those who don't need him, those that do. No, what he's saying is, I came because everyone needs me. I came because everyone is sinful. Romans 3.23 this is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't say most. It doesn't say a lot of people, some people, the majority of people. It says all, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus came because we are all sick and in need of him. It's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 through 11. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? And I mean, the Pharisees at that point would be amening Paul, right? Yeah, that's right, Paul. You let them have it. Amen. Preach on. Bring it, brother. Right? That's what the Pharisees are saying if they heard that. But then verse 11 is what the Pharisees were missing. It's what they lost. Verse 11, Paul says, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Pharisees had lost sight of this. The Pharisees had lost sight of the fact that outside of Christ, we're all dreadful sinners in need of a Savior. We all need the great physician. We all need him. And that's what Paul's driving home here in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He says, listen, all these people, you know they're not going to inherit the kingdom. And this is where you were. Some of you were, this, were in this very spot. 
It's the same thing he reminded us of in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul writes to the Ephesians church and he says, this is who you were. Outside of Christ, this is who you were. It's not like some of you were, but then there were some really good people in, in Ephesus and you weren't like that. No, this is who you were. Ephesian believers, that's who you were. But God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love that he loved us with, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us li alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We can't lose sight of who we are outside of Christ, who we were outside of Christ, I should say. Believers, don't find yourself in the place of the Pharisees where you have this perspective of, well, they're sinners and tax collectors, and I was never there. No. Before Christ came into your life, that's exactly where you were. Those who you would look and go, I can't believe they do that. Outside of Christ, if it weren't for the transforming power of the spirit in your life the sanctifying grace of god in your life you would be doing some of the same things so don't get to the point where you would look and go i would never do that no stay at the point in which you proclaim the mercies of your great god for saving you and you declare the mercies of your great god who is able to save those around you so first, Jesus corrected their perspective. The second thing he does in verse 13 is he criticized their religion. So he corrects their perspective. Now he criticizes their religion in verse 13a, the beginning part of verse 13. He says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So Jesus, just catch this moment just for a second. Think about who he's talking to. He's talking about the Pharisees, the, the learned Pharisees, the religious gurus, the ones who were studied theologians. They knew the word. They knew the Old Testament, right? And what does he say? Hey, uh, go learn what this means. And he doesn't give them this new philosophy. He doesn't give them this new idea. You know what he gives them? He gives them Hosea 6.6. 6. He says, you, you know the word so well. Go and learn what this means. Go think about this. Consider it. Study it. What does he ask them? What does he tell them? I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6, 6, he's just quoting it to them. That I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In, in Hosea 6 verse 4, he says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Now, that word there, the love, is hesed. It's covenant love. It can be translated love, covenant love, mercy, loving kindness, right? And he says, your love is like a morning cloud. It, it's like dew that goes early away. It's brief. It's fleeting. It's not true covenant love. It's not true hesed. It's not true love. So he says in verse 5, therefore, I've hewn them by their prophets. I've slain them by the words of their mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. And then here's what he says in verse 6 that Jesus quotes, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He doesn't just desire this vain religion, this just kind of religious habit 
that you just get up and I grew up in Somerset, Kentucky, so I'm just going to go to church because it's just what I do and it's just what we do and we wear these clothes on a Sunday because it's just what we do. Well, it may be just what you do, but that's not why you do it, right? The reason you do it is because you've been saved by a merciful God. And he desires more than just this religious habit of just coming and walking in the door and looking nice and singing nice songs. He calls us to live genuine, sincere religion, to sincerely worship him, to be a people of mercy. We've been shown great mercy. We're to be a people that show great mercy. And what you need to understand is that when vain religion creeps in, when vain religious legalism creeps in, do you know what happens? It always results in merciless, self-serving religion. That's what happens. When this vain religious legalism creeps in where I just do it because I do it and it's just something I'm going to do and it's a routine I play out, then merciless, self-serving religion comes in. And so Jesus confronts this with the Pharisees. He did the same thing. We'll look at it later in our, in our study. But in Matthew 12, 1 through 8, he again confronts the Pharisees with their vain religion. And you know what he quotes to them there? Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He calls them to be a merciful people, not just a religious people. What do we hear in the, in the Scripture reading? From Micah 6, same thing, Micah 6, 6 through 8, that, that Barry read to us. He calls us again. He's calling the people away from this vain religion where they're just bringing burnt offerings and they're bringing all of this stuff before the Lord, but there's no meaning to it. There's no sincerity to it. It's vain, just religious, empty practice. And what does he say? He says, I've told you what is good. I told you what I require of you to do justice, to love kindness, or that's that, that word again, hesed, to be steadfast in love, to love mercy. It's the same word. It's translated in the Old Testament as loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy. I, to, I want you, I've called you to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Jesus confronts them again. He does so in Matthew 23, 23. He stands before the Pharisees and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What is he confronting them on? He's confronting, on, I mean, confronting them on this, this vain, empty, meaningless, legalistic religion. I wonder if he would do the same to some here today. I wonder if anyone sitting here today would be just caught up in this vain, meaningless religion. I just come and I do it just because I do it. But there's no sincerity of heart. There's no mercy. There's no declaration that, God, you're merciful on a sinner such as I, and I exalt you and I praise you. We're not called to some vain religious legalism. We're called to be the people of God who magnify God and live in praise of his great mercy and show his great mercy. The final thing that Jesus does, he clarifies his mission he clarifies his mission he corrected their perspective he criticized their religion and now he clarifies his mission 
the last part of verse 13, he says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thanks be to God for that. Thanks be to God. That he came to call, not the righteous, but he came to call sinners. He didn't come to applaud us for our merits. He didn't come to pat us on the back for all of our righteous works. He came to save us for our, or from our sins. He came, we, we read, remember John 3, 17, that Jesus did not, or God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him, right? He came to save sinners. Romans 4, 25, we read that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He came to save sinners. In Luke 19, 10, Jesus says that the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to save sinners. What did Paul say in 1 Timothy 1.15? Jesus came to save sinners. Christ came to save sinners. Listen, some of you may have all sorts of good works. You may have them. You may be quite the philanthropist. You may do these wonderful things. You may give of your money. You may donate to all these charities. You may volunteer at places downtown. That's wonderful. Great job. Proud of you. But none of those works are enough to save you. None of those works deliver you from your sin. None of those works achieve the holiness of God because we've all sinned. And while some of you may have more or less good works than others, it really doesn't matter when it comes to standing before a holy God. Because that sin is a violation and a rebellion and transgression against him. And he says that we have all done that. We've all done that. And that sin is punishable by a holy God, an eternal God, who is absolutely just and righteous in all he does. And that includes the punishment of sin. We deserve that. We're all sinners in need of his mercy. We all need a Savior. So it doesn't matter how much good you've done. The sin that you've committed, just like the sin I committed, leaves you in need of God's mercy. In need of God's mercy. And Jesus clarifies his mission. And he says, that is why I came. That's why he came. He came not for the righteous. He came for sinners like you and like me he is a God who is rich in grace and rich in mercy would you follow him if you're here today as an unbeliever that's the call is to follow Christ believe in your heart that he rose from the grave to confess him as Lord He came to save sinners just like you. And the testimony that many of us have here for you today is not that we sit here because we're perfect, not that we sit here because we've earned something. I don't stand before you today because I achieved some high level of learning and perfection and so now I'm a Christian. No, I stand here today because God changed my life and God's using me for his purposes. And his purposes in my life happen to be pastoral ministry. His purpose in your life may look completely different than that. So I would call you to faith in him. 
believers gathered today, I would appeal to you not to fall into the trap of the Pharisees. Don't fall into this religious legalism where you lose sight of the transforming grace and mercy of God in your life and you become those who do not show mercy to those around you. Listen, mercy toward others glorifies God because it reflects God's mercy shown to us in the death of Christ on the cross for us. That's how we glorify God. That's why today we're going to close our time now celebrating the Lord's Supper, remembering his great mercy displayed on the cross, his great love and his grace displayed on the cross for sinners. For sinners. Jesus came to save sinners like us. And so we're going to close our time remembering that, celebrating that, reflecting on that. Lord's Supper, as we close with the Lord's Supper, it is a, a moment for believers to take part in. If you're here and you're an unbeliever, as the elements pass by in a few moments, we would just encourage you to let them pass by and to consider the message of the gospel, the good news that God sent forth his son to live a perfect life, to die on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the grave victoriously over death. He lives and he reigns in heaven and he has made salvation possible, eternal life possible for all who would believe in him. And a simple call is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Believe in your heart God rose him from, the, rose him from the, the dead, right? Confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe, repent. That's the call. Consider that. Parents, if you have a child with you, we would ask you just to guide them through this time and use it as a time to teach them if they are not yet a believer. If you're visiting with us, we would invite you to partake of this with us if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's table. Let's pray as our deacons come forward to serve us.